podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report, the podcast that delves into the world of organized crime, not just La Cosa Nostra, but any crime that is of the organized variety. We have talked a bit on this program about the Detroit mob. We've talked about the mob in Italy. We've talked about the five or six families in the New York, New Jersey area. We've talked about the role that the Jewish mob has played. However, there's been one interesting aspect of mafia life that's been conspicuously absent from our coverage of the mob, and that is the Greek mob. Uh, We are very, very lucky to have a man who is an expert in all things Greek, much more so than me, because it's all Greek to me. He also happens to be a journalist, an author, a mob expert. Very pleased to welcome to the show, also a great podcaster. Very pleased to welcome to the, the Racket Report, Nick Christophers. Nick, it's great to talk to you. Well, thank you, Frank, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, No, the pleasure is mine. Uh, Nick, I know you've been a writer for a while. You've done a lot of different types of writing over the years. What sparked your interest in covering uh, the mob initially? Uh, Well, it kind of started when I was really young, uh, around 13 years old. I was actually in a gang when I was 13. And my dad had a cafe and a lot of those kind of guys, the wise guys, I mean, used to come Mm -hmm. into the store all the time. You know, guys like John Booby Sasani from Sonny Black's crew, uh, Angel Ruggiero, because he had a house in Cedarhurst. He was from Gotti's crew, as we all know. Um, we had uh, Vic Arena from the Colombo family, who I was very good friends with, because they lived two blocks away from me. So I, that's when I was enamored by them. You know how it is. You see them with their, you know, with their clothes and their cars and stuff like that. And that kind of like started me, uh, not so much writing about them, but being enamored by them. So I was around that so- age. Got it. So you came to this not from an objective journalistic point of view, but as a guy that saw that kind of lifestyle, the mob lifestyle, and uh, was very impressed, very taken with it. Yes, exactly. And I, I like I said, I got into trouble when I was a kid. And I was arrested when I was 21. So it wasn't so much me writing about it. It was because I wanted to get somewhat involved in it. I was curious. I you know, I had that kind of curiosity, and I did. I spent, I hung out with these guys a lot, and um, you know, the interest was there. The writing part, where uh, I read a book called The Outsiders in school, we had to, we were required to read it, and I felt a connection with those characters. If you're familiar with the book uh, by S.C. Hinton, um, and that I, I, I felt a part of it. I felt connected to the character, and like I felt like I'm one of them because I was bullied when I was a kid. That's why I got to a gang because I started fighting. Uh, to protect myself, I joined the gang. So um, it was a cross between both, really. So uh, you went down a little bit of a, a wayward path. Uh, did you end up doing time in prison? No, I, I, I got, I did get arrested for assault. I did a little bit. I did. I, I stayed in the, you know, cell for, in the uh, station for like maybe two weeks. My father left me there. Actually, he didn't. He didn't want. He didn't want to come bail me out. 
So he waited, let me sit there and stew for two weeks and think about what I did. Um, and then he came to get me, you know. So, uh, no, I never did it in real time, no. Thank God. <laughs> We're going to get into uh, some of the things you're doing now, including this Mob Tales podcast, which I've seen several episodes of that I think is really interesting. But Thank one you. of the criticisms of uh, what you do with Mob Candy Magazine, with Mob Tales, the podcast, with uh, even with some of the things that I do, is that uh, people have said that there's a glorification of the mob and that it might lead other young people who might be somewhat impressionable, who might be looking for kind of like my, what might you would have been looking for a sense of belonging when you felt like a bit of an outsider, it might lead them down a wayward path. I'm sure you've heard this criticism a dozen times, maybe a hundred times. What do you say to that, Nick? Are, are you and I guilty of glorifying mob life? No, I don't think we're guilty of it. We're actually educating people about it. Because we're not saying, oh, go get a gun and go rob somebody. We're not telling anybody to do anything violent. Uh, actually, on my show, and I'm sure with yours, we talk about redemption. We talk about the guys I have on the show, like Larry Mazza, um, Johnny Lee, and Andrew DiDonato. All those guys were in that life for a very long time. And then when they talk about stuff on the show, they talk about getting away from that life, telling kids it's not a right path to take. And I would tell them it's not the right path to take because I took it at one time and maybe I didn't go that deep into it thank god but I got a, got a little bit of a taste of it and I was especially sitting in the cell that one time and being left there it it, it dawned on me like what am I doing you know, this is stupid what am I you know this is not the path I want to take so it's, it's we talk more about redeeming ourselves rather than going on that path I don't think it applies to either one of us Talk to me about the Greek mob. You have a very interesting book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Mafia Ties, The Greek Syndicates. As I alluded to, when uh, you think of prominent mafia figures, you think of a lot of Italian names, but there are a handful of Jewish names throughout American mafia history. I don't know that a lot of Greek names immediately come to mind when you think of the mob. Uh, talk to me about who the prominent Greek mobsters were and what role they've played in mob history. Well, one of them is specifically Spiro Valenzas, his name is. I know him well. I know his whole family because uh, I used to go hang out in Astoria where it was really Greek town. And he owned a lot of those places there. Two of the, one of the clubs I went to, he hung out with, I hung out there. So I knew who he was. Spiro was connected to the Lucchese crime family. He was under their wing, under their flag, so to speak. Um, he's one of them that was pretty prominent during the, the past decades. Gus Alex was number three guy in Chicago under Tony Accardo. Uh There was uh, the Kanakis brothers in, in Detroit. Um, I mean, sorry, Ernie Kanakis, apologize. Uh, the Katranis brothers were in Detroit. Uh, in Philly, you had the Harry Petros, who I know his son, uh, and Steve Budas were the head of the, they ran the, the uh, metamethine uh, PCP trade in Philly under uh, Angelo Bruno. So they, they, these guys, the things with the Greeks, like you say, a lot of people don't know about them because they, they were so under the radar. They weren't, you wouldn't like see them hanging out on the corner. You know, they just weren't like that. They were very discreet. Everything they did was quiet. It's and not to say anything bad about the Italians, but the Italian guys like to be seen. They wanted people to know, hey, we're here. You know, like sort of like what John Gotti kind of did. Um, the Greeks were nothing like that. That's why a lot of people don't really know how powerful and how much they 
how, they, how what a big role they played in the um, traditional mafia in, in a big way. And a lot of that's covered in your book, I'm sure, which I'm looking yeah. forward to picking up. But um, w- when you say that the, the Greek mobsters kind of kept a little bit more of a low profile, were not as flashy, were not as out there, did they still interact in a big way uh, with the Italian gangsters or were they more like the Russian mob or the Chinese mob, kind of insular, doing their own thing, not necessarily interacting with the others? Oh, no, they interacted with the Italians a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a saying... Uh, you, you probably know it. You probably heard it a hundred times on TV, where John Gotti says, uh, "I don't want to use any foul language, but you uh, can." It's a podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> well, he says, uh, "There's this famous quote. A lot of people hear it. Uh, I will sever. I will tell tell he me John Gotti will sever your motherfucking head off." And that line, he's talking about my guy, my the guy I know, Spiro. He's talking about him. Because Spiro, Sammy Gravano came to, John Gotti complained to Sammy about a gambling den that was close to a Gambino one. And he says, who's running that? And Sammy explained, it was the head of the Greek mob, Spiro at Spiro's place. He runs it. And that's when Gotti got upset and told him, you got to move it. He's got to tell him to close it or I'll kill him pretty much. So they were, Spiro used to go to the horse, used to go to Belmont racetracks. With John, he used to hang out with John Senior there. They were seen together many times. Um, Harry Petros and Steve Budos in Philly were very close with Angelo Bruno, who was the head of the Philly mob. Gus Alex was <laughs> under Tony Accardo. So the Greeks worked more a lot with the uh, Italians in, on a, in a big way. They did a lot of things together, that, and and with the Albanians too. It is interesting. You have seen so many films and read so many books about uh, Italian organized crime, even uh, Jewish mob figures like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. I don't know that I've ever seen a motion picture that has focused on uh, prominent Greek mobsters. And as far as books go, I think yours might be the only one. Why has this been sort of a neglected aspect of mob history when it seems like a pretty fascinating one? Well, to actually tell you the truth, there's been two movies that were made um, surrounding the Greek mob. What is called one was called The Shelter, and the other one was called um, Oh my God, I forgot the name of it. State something. It was Dwayne Johnson was actually in it. Um, oh really? I just, yes, I can't remember. The, it's, it's, it's I can't remember the title, but it's something State, and it was about a major one of the biggest robberies in I think in the mid seventies. Um, it was a century heist in the Bronx and it was, I forgot how many millions and it was a Greek crew that pulled it off and they were connected with, with Spiro. Uh, and that happened and it was around, I think in the late seventies, something like that. Um, so there were those, those are the only two movies that I could think of that they were ever, like you said, mentioned, um, empire state. That's the name of it. Now I remember now empire state and the shelter. Um, the reason being, I think, is because, like we mentioned earlier, the Italians, they've been glorified. They've been there, you know, they have that the style, the way they are. So, and the, and the, gra- the public gravitates to it. I mean, look at the Sopranos, uh, Baldwin Empire, you know, Goodfellas, you can go on and on. So they know that the public likes it, they gravitate to it. You tell the pop, you, you put a film out there about the Greek mob, people will be like, who? They'll be like, who are they? <laughs> They're not going to know. So they won't gravitate to it. 
you know, unless you connect the Italian element to it, then maybe they'll gravitate to it. Um, but that's the whole reason because they're so under the radar. When I tell people, look at me and they, I tell them about, yeah, there was a Greek mob. They look at me like there is, we just know Greek owns, owns diners. <laughs> that's all they know. <laughs> they don't realize that there is an element and it's not a small love- one. Yeah, no, that's what it sounds like. Uh, I love a good diner, believe me. Hey, um, <laughs> tell me about your podcast, Mob Tales. Uh, people can check it out on YouTube. They could just search Mob Tales. How long you been doing it, and what's kind of your goal in doing a podcast like this? You've had a lot of interesting guests, son. Uh, well, I started it about, I think, about a year ago. But about a year, but a year ago, I did it all. By, it was just me, just telling stories. Like it says, Mob Tales, just telling stories that uh, about that life. Um, and all different aspects, you know, about everybody and about stuff that most, some people just never really hear, you know, um, then later I started interviewing people. I started getting, going to that area and, um, it, it's been a great, I have a great time. I really enjoy it. Uh, my purpose is to really get, to do something a little bit different than everybody else. I try to, where I'm interviewing a lot of different people, not the same usual faces all the time. Um, trying to bring other people out, help other people promote themselves and get their name out there kind of a thing. Um, and discuss different, uh, different types of ethnic groups, not just the Italians. I interviewed Greeks. I interviewed Italians. I interviewed Jews. I interviewed Spanish, whatever, anybody that just to get their word out there to show people there's different, you know, ethnic groups that are involved in this world. It's not just Italians. So this way it doesn't create this one prejudice right it's only Italians it's not um and my purpose really is just to keep you know how it is in this business you got to be you got to stay relevant so you want to keep pushing yourself pushing who you are what you do so people get more familiar you know I don't want to stay under the radar (laughs) yeah no good for you you mentioned uh John A. Light and Larry Mazza I know that uh you've had a number of people that have told stories of their life as have I that have uh, undergone some sort of a transition from being a street guy to being someone that uh tells their tale of redemption to keep other people from going down a, a wayward path I'm always curious with these guys how much of this is genuine and how much of this is an act I'll, I'll tell you uh, after the fourth trial of John Gotti Jr. where John A. Light was the star witness. I interviewed mm-hmm. several of the jurors after the trial, and they all told me that they found A. Light's, uh, or the two that I spoke to, they both told me that they found A. Light's testimony not credible. I've talked to some other people that have been in the life and then come out of it, and I find their transition very credible. When you're talking to these guys, how many of them do you think have had a genuine change of heart, and how many do you think are just doing this to promote their own podcast, sell a book or do something that is kind of their only way to continue to make money and get publicity at this point? Well, that's an interesting question. It, um, honestly, I really do think guys like John, Larry and Andrew, uh, Donato, I think they are genuine, all three of them. I know them. I knew, I mean, I knew them. I knew John and, and Andrew prior to them, you know, flipping. So I kind of knew who they were already. And I think they are genuine. John, especially because I've seen him in action. I've seen him what he does. 
when he goes talks to kids, goes to the colleges, goes to uh, to do speaking at a, a seminar. So I've seen him do it, and I've seen him acting really, you know, honest and true about what he says. And especially when I went to, unfortunately, to the funeral of his daughter who died of fentanyl overdose, and just seeing him and his emotions and how he felt and when he's talking to people, I I, I felt for the guy. You know, it was a, a terrible thing and. I think he's really genuine in what he does. Um, he hasn't gotten in trouble or done anything stupid or Larry for that sake either or Andrew. So they didn't revert back to who they were. They moved on from that. So I think guys like them are genuine, but there are ones who take advantage, like you said, just trying to profit from it or, you know, try to make, I'm not going to mention names, but because I don't want to start a war. <laughs> but uh, there are a couple, I think, that do try to just make, you know, make bank on, on their past rather than trying to help, trying to do something with it that benefits other people. Uh, but there are a few. Yes, uh, it goes both ways, I think. I'm sure you know and have interacted with a lot of people that are in that life now. And I'm curious their view as when you have people on like a Larry Mazza who they view as a rat, people that have made the decision to cooperate with law enforcement instead mm -hmm. of when it comes time to pay the piper, going to prison and uh, and doing their time. Do you get any guff for having rats on? Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> All the time. Well, tell me. Tell me. All the time. And I, 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 I don't like, to be honest with you, Frank, I've had that word rat. I used to use it a long time ago. Not anymore. And the reason why is because I, through my research and learning more about these kind of guys and why they, learning why they did what they did. So some of them had a really good reason. Nobody does anything unless there's a reason for it. You know, there's always a reason. And sometimes the reason is, is stupid. Sometimes the reason has some value. And understanding, hearing with these guys' stories, not on my show, just hanging out with them personally and hearing what they have to say and what they went through. And the reason why they did what they did, I wouldn't call them that word anymore because I get upset when people say that to me because I look at them and I say, listen, you can have your own opinion. That's fine. That's, you have every, you're untitled. But there's one thing that Sonny Francis told me, and may rest in soul, um, I used to know him. I used to see him, hang out with him back in the day at this place called Brunelli's in Manhattan on York Street, um, and York Avenue, rather, sorry. And he, he told me something once. He said to me, you know, don't judge me unless you walked in my shoes. Right. For right. whatever I may do. So I said, I said that, that little thing that he told me, I've stayed with me. So I say to myself, when people come to me and say, oh, why are you interviewing that rat? Why are you talking to that snitch? And I said, well, listen, until you walk in his shoes and know why he did what he did, don't judge him. Do your, do your due diligence. Learn a little bit more, more about why he did what he did. Then come talk to me. 
they don't come back to talk to me actually. <laughs> you know, but, uh, that is such a great philosophy to uh, not judge and first listen, which um, is a lot harder to do. And I found myself uh, trying to do that a lot more as I've gotten older, not rush to judgment about what anybody's done, about what anybody's gone through and listen to why they might've done what they've done. Hey, um, how closely do you follow what's going on today in terms of uh, the mafia world and mob news? Oh, I, well, I have to follow it. I got to know what's going on. <laughs> like the, re the recent arrest of like, what was it, 20 guys? Uh, Vinny Slick and all of that whole crew. Um, even last year, right in my neighborhood, the Pepitone brothers, Anthony, I knew him. I used to go to his cafe in, uh, in Limbrook. I'm sorry, yeah, in Limbrook. He had a bakery. I used to hang out there with some of the guys. So, and I knew who he was. And uh, they just got pinched like last year. Um, I think that the mob in general is, is deteriorating. It's not what it used to be, obviously. It's fading. It's, it's, not, it's not as powerful. It's still there. It's just not as powerful as nowhere near what it used to be. Um, I'm giving it maybe another 10 years for it to stick around, possibly. But they just don't have the same amount of pull. They're not making, I don't think, as much money as they used to make. Um, young kids, there's no, there's no like uh, farm team, so to speak, anymore. There's no the kids now go to school. They go to, they want to do corporate, go to corporate companies. They all go to college. So that generation is gone. Where the, you know, that desire to be in the mob anymore. You know, it's just not what it, it's just not there. You know, like when I was growing up. Uh, it was more prevalent. You know, people, you know, kids graduate. They wanted to, kids in school wanted to be part of that. Uh, it's just not there no more. It's, uh, outside of Sicily, in Italy, Sicily or whatever, it's still powerful. The Negrata is still a very powerful uh, group that is that is international. Um, they're still powerful, but and the Russians a bit, but really more in their own country than here. Um, but the Italian mob in general, it just doesn't have the same pull. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you wonder why anybody would want to get involved in that life now, seeing how it ends inevitably for anybody. Plus, if you look at all the different ways that the mob made money over the years, almost all that activity is legal. Uh, now and uh, sports betting which was a huge source of revenue uh all sorts of other things it's legal legal and legal with the exception of uh labor racketeering there's i don't see a lot of other ways that uh that you could still make money well they use the internet a lot so, you know pornography mm -hmm. is still powerful um you know the porn sites a lot of stuff they control a lot of that um you know off uh, the betting that they do overseas through the internet, a lot of these sports betting sites are not all really legitimate. Some of them, these guys run, you wouldn't know the difference really. Um, but they do do that uh, a little bit. They still do that. Um, but the traditional way of making money, loan sharking, uh, there's nobody really goes to them anymore. There's the, uh, you know, they don't go into stores and extort anybody no more. Those things are all gone. They don't, uh, you know, it's funny. The scene, the scene of The Sopranos, where um, the two characters, Dan Grimaldi and Ali Pasquale, the two actors, they walk to the Starbucks trying to shake them down, <laughs> and right. they can't. Because <laughs> so that's kind of like a an epitome of what it is, what it's become. That they can't even shake down anybody no more. So it, it's a lot of the traditional way of making money is kind of gone. And right now, with technology, where 
if you breathe, the government knows. I mean, I mean, it's crazy. They are being tracked everywhere. So it's very difficult not to get caught. It's really, really, uh, you really got to go under the freaking radar to not get caught. And it's hard to do. Yeah, you said it. That's uh, that's for sure. Um, you mentioned some of the recent mafia-related arrests, including this uh, Gambino a crime family indictment. You know, one of the things that does irk me a bit about what the government does is, you know, they rounded up, uh, I guess, these 10 fellas uh, that, um, you know, some of which are accused of very serious crimes. But what they do is when they announce the indictment, they act like the process is over. You have the U.S. attorney and the FBI agent all uh, patting themselves on the back like they've just won the Super Bowl. And here I'm <laughs> thinking, well, wait a minute, Are, aren't at least some of these guys entitled to the presumption of innocence? They have no problem putting whatever dopey nickname these guys have in the criminal indictment. And as far as I'm concerned, it's designed to just taint the jury. And then the media, uh, except with the exception of some fellows like you, they print all of these guys' names as if they're all, um, you know, Al Capone and John Gotti combined, whereas uh, most of the ones in that recent Gambino indictment weren't even members of the mob. I think you had maybe three members of the mob and the rest were all associates. Do you Mm -hmm. think that the media plays a role in hyping up these prosecutions and making these guys into a bigger deal than they are because it serves their interest in getting clicks? Well, yes and no. I think so. But I think what's even more interesting is the fact that all these guys, I mean, right now in New York State anyway, it's what? No uh, no bail? You know, you get arrested, right. you know, right. no bail, so you let out the next day. Um, which I find interesting is how all these guys had to put up bail. 20,000, 10,000, whatever it is. So I'm like, wait a minute. It only applies to the, to the it only applies to these guys? It only applies to the mob? And what about everybody else that, that goes to get arrested and they don't have to pay bail and they get out the next day for whatever crime they committed? Uh, to me, it's irrelevant. Whatever crime you commit, you got to post bail. You got to post bail. But you know, how is why is it only applied to apply to some people? It doesn't apply to others. I don't get that. Um, but yeah, I agree I, that I think I, splattering these guys' names all over the place, and without they haven't got convicted yet, they haven't even had a trial yet, and yet they're painted the, the, the way they, the way you, when you read the article, it sounds like okay, they're all going to jail now. But this, it doesn't right. really, you know, how do you judge you? You're passing judgment already via the media. And yet these guys haven't been, haven't even been tried yet. So I think that's kind of wrong, but I know why they do it. They do it because they want, you know, to make them, like you said, make them look like the superstars. You know, there was a story that just came out recently uh, that uh, apparently there's a Gambino crime family investigation, which is actually unfolding in Orange County, New York. You have the FBI, the NYPD searching farmlands in upstate New York for potential bodies and contraband connected to a mob probe. 
do you think based on, you know, your knowledge of this stuff and following this stuff, do you think this search of what's going on in Orange County, do you think that's an indication that one of these guys in the most recent Gambino crime family indictment might have flipped? Or do you think that's an indication that maybe there was an informant uh, that uh, that tipped them off and that that led to both the indictment or uh, and the Orange County search? Can you speculate, given your experience and your knowledge on what might be the genesis of what they're looking for in Orange County? Um, from what I understand, I think there was an, definitely an informer. I don't think it's any of the guys they picked up. I think it's something that came prior. And they are just adding to this whole storyline. Um, I think they're searching for bodies, I'm, I'm assuming. But I don't think so. The reason being is because there's been sort of like a rule where nobody gets whacked anymore. They haven't whacked anybody in years because they don't want it to be, you know, they don't want to attract attention no more. So even what they guys, these guys got indicted for, as far as I remember, there was no murder charge. It was all racketeering. Um, so I don't think it's bodies they're looking for. I think they're looking for some, I think they're possibly looking for something that leads to their, their investigation to help evidence. I think they're looking for evidence, something like that. That's what I think. I'm not 100 percent positive, but this is what I think. Yeah, well, I think your guess is your guess is as good as anybody these days. You know, one of the things (laughs) in getting involved in uh, in mob life that you don't generally get to do is become an old man. Uh, Usually, you uh, wind up in prison. It's a very stressful life. Uh, There's uh, a lot of uh, use of drugs, alcohol, and at least uh, years ago, there was uh, certainly an you know an opportunity that you would end up getting killed. Although these gangland murders are pretty rare these days. One of the people that was an exception to that was uh, Tommy Gambino just passed away at the age yes. of mm-hmm. 94. They call him the, the mafia prince. Uh, what do you know about Tommy Gambino and his legacy to the world of organized crime? Well, Tommy, of course, was the you know uh, bro- brother of Carlo. Um, uh, Carlo. Carlo Gambino was another one that died at a very old right. age. Um, right. These guys like him, they don't make guys like Carlo Gambino no more or Maya Lansky, for that matter. Um, These guys were, they knew how to, for example, about staying under the radar. They were excellent at doing that. And so was Tommy. Tommy was very quiet. You didn't really hear much about him, you know, because he did, you know, he was involved with the unions and the the fashion industry over there. Uh, So he was, again, very quiet. He didn't do much. You didn't hear much. He wasn't a violent guy. He wasn't a guy that went and, you know, whacked anybody. It just wasn't him. He was an earner. And that's what he was good at. And, of course, don't forget, because of his name, he had a lot more pull than mostly anybody else. Um, So I think he was a very powerful guy, but in a very quiet way, which is the way it should be. And uh, which not obviously that's not the case anymore. Um, Ever since, you know, the John Gotti of the day, they who love the spotlight, him and like Skinny Merlino from Philly, these guys love the spotlight. Which is even funnier, mentioning Skinny, Skinny has his own podcast, which is really bizarre. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, no, it's it certainly is. Hey, um, I know I hate when people ask me this question because it's such a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, ask it to you. Anyway, um, of all the guests that you've had on your Mob Tales podcast, and again, we want to encourage people to check it out on uh, on YouTube, uh, just search Mob Tales. They can also go to your website, nickchristophers.org. But of all the guests that you've had, who do you think has been the most interesting? Who was someone that you interviewed and you just said, wow, Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Who? Oh my God, that's that's um, a tough one. Um, a lot of these guys are my friends, so I don't want to. I don't want to upset nobody. Sure, well, give me, give me, give me one that stands out. Give me one that stands out. Maybe Larry you, Ma- you, Larry maybe Mazza. it's not your favorite. Yeah, Larry stood out for me a lot. Um, Fernando Ponce, who's not even a wise guy, he was uh, actually a gang member of the Savage Skulls back in the day, back in the seventies. So his, him and Larry kind of, uh, were very interesting. Especially especially because it's very different. You know, his experience from a gangster, from a street gang to becoming a boxer and running and opening a boxing gym for kids to get them off the street. Um, and Larry, of course, because of his, you know, his business acumen, how he was able to, step away from that world and then be able to open his own gym and, and, you know, expand in a, in a more positive manner, uh, legit manner. So uh, those two, I think were the best, most interesting to me. And finally, I'll end with this, Nick, and uh, want to encourage folks to check out the podcast, check out your, your, uh, your book. I, I ask everybody this, and I'm curious as to your take based on your observation, a lot of people only know mob life from the movies. And I always ask folks what they think is the most realistic depiction of mafia life. If you were going to answer that question, what would you say? What's the most realistic picture of the mob that's been depicted in cinema? Donnie Brasco. Really? Yeah. Even though it was very inaccurate, you know, it really, I mean, the way things really happened, I, I could shred that movie to pieces. But um the way the life is yeah donnie brosco is pretty much accurate in that respect and goodfellas too okay goodfellas and donnie brosco would say were the two of the most that came close to you know the real street life what it's really kind of like the treachery the well, you know dishonesty and what these guys how, how they really are how they really like you know care about it how, how much they really care about each other but they really don't uh, all that kind of how they treat women. It's um, I think those two kind of hit it. On that note, we're going to have to end it there. Hey, Nick, I've enjoyed this okay. conversation. I hope we could chat again in the future. No, I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you very much. If uh, you're listening and someone sent you this podcast, hopefully you will do us a favor and pass it on to someone that you want to be well-informed. And uh, please be sure to subscribe to The Racket Report wherever podcasts are available. Just search The Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. You can also find previous editions of our podcast at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.